share some topical messages. Pastor E's just done a great job. On the back of, or in conjunction with our week of prayer, um, looking at um, God's glory, which is fundamental, Bertram mentioned it when he was doing communion, and how that needs to be uh, <coughs> our ultimate focus. And it's funny because as we focus on God's glory, it actually contributes to blessing our lives indescribably. And um, looking at worship and the fact that God, who is glorious, seeks those who would worship him for who he is. And in so doing again, we get blessed and quite greatly benefited. And we are only doing what we were made to do, what we were created to do, what that which is right to do, which is worship the Lord. And um, God is seeking such and talked about the, the ways in which we can do that, not just in singing, but in terms of how we live our lives. Um, <clears throat> and then last week we had um, Brother Mike Royal from TLG come and share and talk about um, what God desires. And, and that with regards to fasting and prayer and um, what that should look like as an outcome. You know what I'm saying? If we're really seeking the Lord, this should be the, f the byproduct. This should be the fruit of that. And, and fundamentally, I think one of the things, even talking to Pastor E, um, one of the things that it seems quite apparent that over the past few weeks and beyond, because it seems like we're still in that place. Oh, I've switched this thing on. Sorry. Um, it seems like we're still in that place where um, the Lord is obviously still speaking to us, as he always does, but in a very pointed fashion. And talking about change, it seems like change is the challenge, you know what I'm saying, in, 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 in contrast to apathy, you know what I'm saying, the challenge of change. And, <clears throat> you know, it's one thing to be challenged externally, like having someone saying, oh, you need to change, whether it be, you know what I'm saying, um, one of us from the front, um, fundamentally God himself saying we need to change. It's another thing having that intrinsic um, commitment to change, like apart from anybody telling me I need to change, I know I need to change. Amen. Do you know what I'm saying? And, um, and, and we probably won't change until we come to a place where we're kind of personally dissatisfied <laughs> with our own shortcomings, with our own sin. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and so today, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I, I stopped short of saying this is probably... Yeah, let me, let, let me not say it. <laughs> I just, I, I really love this portion of text. Let me say, let me just say that. Um, but today, I'd like for us to just talk about personal spiritual dissatisfaction. Personal spiritual dissatisfaction. This is about how I think about me. And possibly we could say, I want to change, you know what I'm saying, but I don't know how. I want to change, but can't seem to to get I take one step forward it seems like I take two steps back it's like the cry of my heart is I want to change so if you will look with me at Luke chapter 13 um, it's only four verses <laughs> like what does that mean right amen I'm not saying it brother thank you praise the Lord it's wisdom right there so Luke chapter 13, and as you turn there, I'm, I'm really, I'm, if you've got a paper Bible, great. You're not going to have a problem finding it. If you don't have a Bible, but you do have a phone, like a smartphone, I beg you turn to it. 
you know, go online. If you, if you don't have a Bible app, go online and just type in Luke chapter 13. And you, I think the first thing that comes up is like Bible Gateway. Bertram's got a couple of Bibles. Thank you, brother, if anybody needs one. Because I really want you to, to look at the text as we walk through it. You know what I mean? It's, it's going to be, I feel, really helpful. And um, I don't know if you can see clearly because I know we've got the lights quite dim. Uh, maybe we can just turn up the lights just a little bit more because it's kind of dark outside, isn't it? <clears throat> so hopefully you're there now in some way, shape or form. Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through to 9. I'm just going to give it one more second because I can see. Amen. Luke chapter 13. Okay, so I'm going to start reading from verse 6. And he told, that is the Lord Jesus, he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look. For three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Father, thank you that um, you Provide us with your word. What a precious treasure. It's priceless. It's above diamonds and emeralds and rubies and platinum. Um, it's so precious and, and we get it as a wonderful gift. Help us, Lord, not to neglect it. Therefore, neglecting our great salvation. Um, Lord, would you help us as we look carefully at your word today? And as it was prayed earlier, Lord, allow us to be transformed and changed by and through it as you work by your spirit. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask. Amen. Amen. Can I tell you a, a story <clears throat> about a man that was stranded on a desert island? I mean, being on a desert island is nice for a minute. If you're stranded and it's just him one, right? How many people on the island? Just him one, right? And <clears throat> he's been there for over 10 years, waiting and looking. And all of a sudden, one day, here comes his ship. You know what I'm saying? They spot the island, they get off the ship, and they come down. And they find him, and he's there on the shore. He can't believe it. He's so jubilant. He's really happy. And they say to him, they say, boy, like, 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 like how long have you been here? He's like, man, I've been, I've been here so long. He says, I think it's, it's over 10 years I've been here. They're like, Wow. I'm saying this, and they said, well, we can see that you've obviously made yourself at home. I suspect that's your house. He's like, yeah, that's my house. That's my house. And they're like, but wait a minute. There's some other, like, like what's that building over there? And he's like, oh, he says, he says, that's where I go to church. And the guys are like looking at each other thinking, okay, that's where you go to church. It's like, you're the only one in the island. All right. So, but what's, what about, oh, there's, there's a mashup, broke down, like mashup building over there. What's that building over there? And he says, he says, that's where I used to go to church. See, this fictional story highlights the issue of personal dissatisfaction. Not as it relates to someone else, you know. This afternoon, I'd, I'd like to consider the issue of dissatisfaction, not with others, but with ourselves. 
And when you first became a Christian, you possibly probably had great, you know what I'm saying, um, plans for your future and a grand vision for your life. But it possibly, maybe it has, but maybe it hasn't materialized. In fact, the opposite is possibly true and your spiritual life is in pieces. And your daily cry is, I'm not where I, where, where, where I, where I want to be. I, I know that, I know where I ought to be. Still struggling with major character defects, outbursts of anger. And it's like unforgiveness, old traits, old sins. And you constantly come to the Lord about these things in confession, pleading with him to change you. Maybe even over the course of our time of praying and fasting, it was like, man, the church is fasting, you know, and I'm a part of the church. That means I've got to fast too, and boy. But even the thought of it was a struggle. And maybe you did. You fasted a meal here or a meal there, and and during that time, because, you know, like, when you fast, like when you take a, t a moment to, to, to fast and to pray, because you know, fundamentally, it's, it's used not, not eating, not just for the sake of not eating. It's not eating. And in that time when you wouldn't be eating, that's the time you, you kind of pray. You know what I mean? And it's funny how it, it feels very much like, I know every time for me, you know what I'm saying, that I, I, I'm either urged to, forced to, or desire to fast and pray, it feels a little bit like a bit of a, a reboot. You know, like when you've had your laptop open or your computer, your desktop open for, like, for hours or maybe days or maybe even weeks. And it passed the E, you know them ones. And, um, and, and, and you haven't shut it down and you've got, like, I don't know, 100 applications running. And even when you shut them down, the applications, you think they're shut down, but they're still running somehow in the background. Computers start run slow, get the little spinning wheel. You know what I'm saying? What, what, you, need to sh you need to shut it down completely, switch it off and reboot it. It feels a bit like that when you commit yourself to fasting and prayer, because as soon as you stop eating, you're like, I'm not eating. <laughs> what am I going to do with myself? Like, you know, and, and, and as you begin to pray, you're it's like you get rebooted, and all of the other stuff that was in your mind kind of gets, you know what I'm saying, um, locked, washed away, as it were, and you get a chance to focus. And I know for me, during that time, I was confronted with me. You know what I mean? And, and, all, and, and it was like all of my shortcomings, everything became extremely um, amplified. And, and then having to say, Lord God, well, I've got issues. Lord, I need you to help me. I need you to help me. And especially being married, I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like when you're, when, when you're single to some degree, forgive me, just allow me for a moment, right? When you're single, it's like, could I suggest that it's easy not to really recognize that everyone else ain't the problem? You know, like when you get married, let me tell you something. I know for, per like, let me, this, personal, you know, my, this is my testimony. When I got married, I, real, I was like, raw. I realized the problem wasn't so much everyone else as much as it was me. And now, but I'm in a position now where, oh my gosh. You know what I mean? You see it much more clearly, isn't it, Brother Kane? You know what I mean? And my issues got highlighted now. I know, you know those of us that are unatta unattached, right? 
I know you guys, you, you know your sinfulness. If anything, sometimes a, a protracted period of singleness actually even highlights your issues. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I'm saying, and, 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 and you could easily get married or single, you could easily get to that point, you know what I'm saying, where you start saying things like, Lord, I try to change and I can't. And there can be a thin line between discouragement and, and depression. And then we start saying things like, Lord, why did you put up with me? You start saying things like, am I, am I even a Christian? Am I even saved? You know what I mean? Like the way I, the, the way I know my heart is and the way I go on. Now, I wish I could give you five simple steps to solving this problem, right? But I can't. Like the microwave, magic wand, 24-hour overnight wonder cure stuff don't work, right? Yet, yet God's word gives us great insight into a process through which we can be changed. And I want to I wanna give some crucial principles that will eventually, hopefully, bring about this desired change that we all desire. Now, verse 6, <clears throat> if you notice, it says, He also spoke this parable. Now, this is prior to what I just read, right? He says, he also, so well, what did Jesus say beforehand that caused him to also now say what we just read, right? In other words, what's the context? Notice verse 1 to 5 of this same chapter. I think I got it up for you. If you haven't got it, hopefully you have. But It says, there were present at that season some who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Oh my gosh. Worshippers slaughtered by soldiers under Pontius Pilate's command whilst in the process of offering up sacrifices. Mingling their blood with the blood of the offerings that they're offering up. How many of you know that's a tragic scenario? Verse 2, And Jesus answered and said to them, <clears throat> Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? He says, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And in verse 4, he give, um, they, 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 there's another example given. So you hear about them guys, okay. Or how about those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? Imagine that, like this building just falls on people and kills them. He says, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Now, in these verses, Jesus <clears throat> comments on disturbing current events at the time, right? The first example is suffering at the hands of evil men, verse 1 and 2, right? The second example is suffering in the wake of a natural disaster, verse 4. These that brought, that brought this message to Jesus suspected that the victims were afflicted on account of their excessive sinfulness. <laughs> it's like, huh? These things happened because these were terrible sinners. That's why that happened, you know. And Jesus responds with a resounding, no. No. Now, this doesn't contradict Galatians 6 verse 7 that says, whatsoever we sow, we shall also reap. That's true. Right? But what Jesus was correcting here was the notion that 
Only desperately wicked people end up like that. Like bad things only happen to bad people. Meaning, bad things don't happen to good people. See, the mindset was that people that do bad get punished. And reciprocally, on the other hand, people who do good never ought to be ill-affected. In Job chapter 4, do you remember Job was going through a difficult time? <laughs> right? And then his quote-unquote so-called friends came to his aid. <laughs> and one of them says in Job chapter 4 verse 7, he says, look, the upright or the innocent never perish. They're never negatively affected as if terrible circumstances only happen as a result of bad behavior. The, 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 the reason you're, 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 you're in this mess, Job, is obvious. It's because you flopped, bro. You know what I mean? And it's like reflecting on what we just read. Oh, Lord, look at what happened to these Galileans whilst in the midst of a religious exercise, you know. Mm-mm. They must have been secret hypocrites. And this perspective permeated Jewish thinking. Listen to the disciples in John chapter 9. Now as Jesus... Whoops, I'll read it to you because the screen's gone. In John chapter 9, verse 1 to 3, it says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man, notice, that was blind from birth. When was the man, man blind from? And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? Now the man's in the predicament. The poor man was blind from birth. Like, when did he have a chance to, to be the, 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 pro, the, the source of the problem? But you hear the question they ask. They ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? Because in their mind, oh my gosh, look what's happened to him. Huh. Somebody must have sinned. Look, that he was born blind. And Jesus says, neither. Jesus says, neither. This didn't happen as a... They said him, and if it ain't him, well, it must be his parents. You see that in verse 2. Because <laughs> it, be, it must be somebody's fault why this has happened. You see the thinking? But the real point, Jesus says this didn't happen as a direct result of them sinning. You see, Jesus, is, Jesus says, he says, none of these things compare to what will eventually happen to all sinners. It's like, if you think that was bad, and it is, it's nothing to compare to what, wo what will happen to the sinner if they do not repent. And it doesn't matter if you sin like Hitler or you sin like Mother Teresa. Right? If I said, is there any difference between the two of them? Now, obviously, you know your Bible, right? You'd be like, no, well, one's male and one is female. Maybe that's the only difference. <laughs> but, as, but with regards to their sin... There's no difference. And you will eventually have a much more terrible experience than these two examples in the text that we just read. Tower falling on you or being slaughtered, your blood being mingled with your sacrifices. As bad as that is. Because the eventual fate of all sinners is much worse. It's eternal separation from God in hell. Don't think that because a building didn't collapse on you, that you're any less of a sinner.
Now, let me just say this. You may have had um, something terrible happen to you. Like, but in contrast, you know what I'm saying? Um, don't be disheartened. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're a worse sinner than anybody else, you know what I'm saying? But on the other hand, don't get comfortable, you know what I'm saying, in the illusion that suggests because nothing has happened to you, you know what I'm saying, that you're okay. We're not okay. If we haven't had a change of heart that leads to a change in how we live. Jesus says, except you repent, you will, all, you will also perish. And in, in, another, in another place, Jesus says, don't worry about those who can harm your body. Worry about him who will throw body and soul into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, if you don't repent. Now, very often, people ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Wrong question. The question really ought to be, why do good things happen to bad people? Think about it. Because the truth is, we're all bad. None of us are good. Romans chapter 3, right? As it is written, none is righteous. And just in case you didn't get it, because it was a bit unclear, like none is righteous. <laughs> it says, no, not one. Right? None of us are good. There's only one who is good, and that is God. Amen? So then the quote, bad things happening to so-called good people is a misnomer. <clears throat> the real miracle is that the Lord would allow any good to happen to any of us because we're all so bad, as Bertram pointed out, as he did communion. God has been very good to us. And these are some of the reasons why we ought to give God thanks and worship him. So this is the context of our verses. Right, verse 6 to 9. <clears throat> and, and so what is, the Lord, what is the Lord Jesus talking about? He's talking about repentance. He's talking about changing. Because repentance ultimately, fundamentally means to change the way you think that leads to a change in the way that you act. Change. Now sometimes <clears throat> we don't, but often... We know what we need to do, but the issue is how to go about doing it. Are you in a place where you know that the Lord is wanting to see some real change in your life? And I'm saying you want to see some real change in your life, yet you just can't seem to do it. Now, <clears throat> this relates to you even if you're not a Christian. You may not have had or made any kind of profession of faith. You may not be a regular church attender. Yet, deep in the recesses of your heart, you also want to change. Maybe that's one of the reasons you're here. And there are, there are, there are, there are those this afternoon who, <coughs> who are Christians, who have made a response to the call of repentance and have trusted Christ and his sacrifice at the cross. When we took communion, it was like, yes, Lord, I believe this. But you have reached a plateau. You know what plateau is, right? It's you climb and climb and climb. You get to this flat area and you're walking. Previously, you were climbing and you were gaining height. Now, you're not gaining any height. You're just on this level and can't seem to get any higher. You, on the other hand, have been attending church. You have accepted Christ. You've been baptized, but you come to a place of stagnancy. And you feel stuck in a rut and you feel like you can't get out. 
I won't ask for a show of hands. But the key is repentance. The key is change. And I can hear you silently screaming, but I have repented. Therein lies the frustration. Um, We're going to see this theme of repentance continue and develop. Notice, this is a parable, right? Verse 6 says, he also spoke this parable, right? It's not a literal story. It's an illustration that points to a greater reality. And apart from the context, it's really difficult and even dangerous to be dogmatic. But the illustration is probably describing Israel and its unfaithfulness to God as a nation. But it is applicable also to you and to me as individuals. So verse 6, remember I asked you to follow with me. Verse 6, it says, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Notice, this is a cultivated fig tree. It's not a wild fig tree. (laughs) This was planted, it was selected intentionally for a purpose. And the purpose was that it would what? It would produce fruit. Amen. Thank you. You're with me. There was an expectation associated with this tree. Can you begin to see how this could easily describe Israel, God's people, historically a cultivated people, intentionally selected by God for a purpose. Listen to Psalm 80. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. Isaiah 5, talking about Israel being this vine or this tree. Now, let me sing verse 1 of Isaiah 5. Let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out all its stones. He's done it personally. You hear the personal nature of this. You need to do it personally, but you hear the personal. And planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it (laughs) to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I've not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? It goes on, verse 5. And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. It shall be burned and break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned. We'll come back to pruning. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, that, that, they, that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. See that? He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. 
Hence the need, as we heard from Mike last week, for a fast that the Lord desired because of the way the people was going on. Last Old Testament verse, John, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21 says, Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? Now this described Israel historically back then. This could even describe Israel now in the 21st century. But back to our text, because that's not the focus. Notice a tree, a mature tree, transplanted into this well-kept vineyard. It lives in a protected environment, in a vineyard. The environment was specifically conducive <laughs> to providing everything that this tree needed. Can you begin to see how this could also easily describe you and me? Jesus said to his disciples, as I'm sure you're considering in John 15, he said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. And that's what we want, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. See how this parable speaks to us. Now let's think this through. <clears throat> it's a cultivated tree, it's grown, it's a mature tree, it's protected in a vineyard, it's a well-watered tree regardless of the climate or or rainfall or the lack thereof it would have been watered at regular intervals possibly probably an irrigated location regular watering is essential to fig reproduction and in john 7 stringing a few things together on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. I didn't do that properly, right? We've got to read our Bible properly, you know. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and what? And cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart. Another translation says, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. He wasn't speaking literally, verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. <clears throat> As being well watered, this plant it would have been pruned <laughs> in order to encourage or provoke growth. You ever heard of pinking shears? <laughs> right, man laugh, man know. Pinking shears, they're like they're, they're these kind of stubby nose scissors with like a twist at the end where it kind of curls up. It's like they use them to clip like the branches off of a tree or a plant in the process of pruning. 
and you have to mind, sh like these things are so, don't get your finger in caught in pinky because it will nicely, like so easily, like, like a hot knife through butter, cut off your finger, like, and when they, when, when they, when they apply it to the branch and they, and they, and they, and they snip the branch, right, the, the branch begins to bleed, it, or, or it, like, it begins to ooze, like sap begins to just ooze out. So brutal is the, is the, prune, is the process of pruning. You know what I mean? And you look at the, you look at the, 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 the plant and you, you, your heart goes out to the plant because the plant looks like it's been brutalized. You know what I'm saying? And the thing is, pruning is painful but productive. Pruning is painful, but, but productive. In, in John 15, at the beginning of John 15, Jesus said, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now that's a problem. And I mean, that's a very concerning verse or part of the verse. And then the second part is just as concerning, but in a different way. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. I'm like, why every? Lord, you know what I'm saying? Every branch, you'd think it's bearing fruit. Pruning's still going to come. Why? That it may bear more fruit. It's like, what a choice. Burning or pruning. That's the choice. Two choices. Notice this plant, it had been planted, it had been watered, it had been pruned. It's also been fertilized. You know, many fig trees, they don't bear just once a year, but they bear twice a year. Therefore, this tree would have produced six crops in three years, eight crops in four years. Right? This tree was provided for. Everything that it needed was supplied. And because much was given, guess what? Much was, requi much was required from this tree. And one day with justified expectation, verse 6, the owner came seeking a fair return on his investment. But there's a problem. No fruit on the tree. How does the owner respond? Verse 7. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look! For three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. Consi <clears throat> Considering that verse, notice two things. One, the owner had been patient with this tree. He gave it time, he gave it opportunity, he gave it resources. You see that? Second thing is the owner recognized this tree. This particular, he was familiar with this particular tree. He knew this tree. Otherwise, how would he have been able to say what he just said? For three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. <laughs> Therefore, verse 7b, cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? And you know, the thing is about fig trees, yeah? 
Naturally speaking, fig trees are greedy trees. Their roots travel far beyond the canopy of the tree. Greedy. <laughs> How is the owner supposed to respond? Get rid of it. Cut it down. Is that an unfair suggestion? Now you might get the impression that the man who owns the field and all the trees must be who? God. Thank you. And the temptation at this point is to identify or to personalize the owner that is the keeper. And you may cast your mind back to John 15. Because in John 15, um, who did the gardener represent in John 15? You have to think a bit clearly. Who did, who did the, the gardener represent? Uh, let me say it like this. Who did the vine represent? Jesus. Amen. Christ. Who was the gardener? God. The father was the gardener, right? Who were the branches? Us, the disciples, right? The branches. Well, I'm not going to personalize the characters in our parable in the way that they were defined in John 15, because Jesus doesn't do that here in our parable, right? So I'm not going to do that. But there are definitely three things that can be identified here. Three things. Truth. Grace. And time. Truth, grace, and time. First of all, truth. It is very true that this tree should have produced some fruit by now. It is very true that everything necessary was provided for this tree in super abundance, over and above that which was needed. It is true that the tree had no excuse for being barren. It is true that the only real alternative to this barrenness was to uproot and discard this tree. Is it not true that the ground, the moisture, fertilizer, nourishment were all being wasted by this tree? Not to mention time, money, and energy. This tree was fit for nothing but to be cut down. Is that not the truth. Adam and Eve in the garden. You done what? Well, you know the penalty. It's death. You both deserve to die. Samson. For fooling around with Delilah. You deserve, Samson, nothing less than to be axed down. King David, for his, be, his behavior with Bathsheba, the, the royal decree ought to be slay him with the edge of the sword. Peter, New Testament, Peter, you denied Jesus not once or twice, but thrice. After making a promise to Jesus that you would be faithful. You deserve nothing other 
than to be cut down. Is that not the truth? Well, how about us here in this room? For what you did last week, and you can put your name in the space provided, right? For what you did, for what I did last month, last year, we deserve the same. We deserve to be cut down. The wages for sin is what? Is that not true? It's absolutely true. And it's absolutely what we deserve. Those who were slaughtered whilst offering up sacrifices. Those who had the tower fall on them in Siloam. Getting caught in an earthquake. Being swept along and drowning in a tsunami. Being crushed in a train accident. This is nothing compared to what we really deserve. And if we don't repent, we will all likewise perish. And it's nothing less than that which we all deserve. How many of you know that that is the truth? Now, how many of you know <clears throat> that we need truth? Truth helps us to realize the seriousness of sin. It helps us to understand the seriousness of an issue or an attitude. We need the truth. It corrects. It instructs, it, rep it reproves, it rebukes us. But truth on its own is a very hard and unmerciful taskmaster. See, justifiably, unequivocally, in the ultimate universal courts of justice, we're condemned by the judge slash executioner, the Ten Commandments, the law. Bertram spoke about it again, that earlier. I thought he was going to preach my whole message during communion. The law says, which of you is good? Who am... You see what I mean? Because I was going to tell this story, but I can't tell it as, as well as I wanted to because Bertram stole the thunder. This woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. <laughs> what does the law decree? Stone her. But then, here comes Jesus. Wow, talk about just in the nick of time. Jesus, master, what do you have to say? It's like, yeah, you're right. She deserves death. But which of you is qualified to execute judgment? Which of you is good? Who among you is without sin, says Jesus, looking around if you like. <laughs> oh, none of you, only me. He could have said that, he didn't say that, but he could have said that. <laughs> he could have said that. But, but notice he says, and he does, because he says, but I choose not to condemn her. And Jesus, beautiful, Jesus turns and faces the woman, right? Can you imagine, this? Can you imagine the state? Because we, we do tend to focus a lot on the crowd and what's going on and picking up or not picking up the stones, and that's good. But can you imagine the state this woman would have been in? 
I mean, what must, what, must it be, what must it be like to stand there knowing you are about to be executed? I mean, at least, you know what I'm saying, when, 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 when some prisoners are put in this difficult position, they blindfold them at least. She's going to see every single boulder coming her, I mean, her way, until, obviously until she's blinded by them. I mean, how, is, how do you think this woman is feeling? <clears throat> Remember, she was caught in the act. Now, I don't need to describe that, do I? Sometimes you do, but not graphically or crudely, right? But think about it in emotional terms. One minute she's being intimate and being made to feel loved, quote unquote. She's possibly in a moment, it's like she feels like she's on cloud nine with this man, right? Being enraptured with his quote unquote love. One minute, not forgetting, I don't want to push this too far, not forgetting, you know what I'm saying, that she's with a man that's not, not her husband. But like so many women and men, all right, because it's not just women that get joy or affection or some sense of um, satisfaction. Men, men are the same, looking for love in all the wrong places, right? Now, I'm trying to paint the picture of how this woman feels. One minute, it's 50 shades of grey, right? Next minute, she's standing outside, not inside. She's standing outside in public. Poss I mean, how, she, how is she dressed, if dressed at all? Right? About to be executed. Talk about a, this, talk about a range of emotions over the course of the past 10, 15 minutes for this poor woman, Right? Pulling at her dress that's probably torn if, again. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, she's wrecked. She, she, possibly she's in that place where she probably wants to die. And we're not sure, right? This may have been consensual. She may have been in a relationship that she wanted to be in. But she may have been a victim of rape. We don't know. The text don't say. But we do know that Jesus turns to face this woman. Notice, God turns to face this woman. The woman is now in her state looking at the face of God. John chapter 8. Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Now at this point, I didn't tell you what Bertram told you. Everyone had dropped their stones and they'd walked off by now. And Jesus says to a woman, where are they? Those who a moment ago you thought were your executioners, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, I mean, she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, well, you know what? You're standing before the judge right now, and you're guilty right now. Like, I'm going to tell you really, right? Like, how you're even standing there breathing is a miracle. Let me tell you. Jesus doesn't say that, does he? He could say that. And how many of you know he should say that? That's why I love this thing called Christianity. It's, 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 it's bitter sometimes, but it's so sweet. <laughs> Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. 
I mean, what must that have sounded like? That, what is, what is that? I mean, we talk about truth. What is that? Neither do I condemn you. What is that? I, did, I already did tell you. That's grace, isn't it? That's grace. Jesus said, neither, I, neither do I condemn you. But notice, that's not all he said. He says, go and from now on, sin no more. He didn't overlook the issue of sin. It's real and it's serious. But like all the other Old Testament illustrations that I gave you, whether it was Peter, New Testament, David or Samson or Adam and Eve, Go and sin no more. There's the truth. Sin. But he showed her grace, which is undeserved favor. And she knew that. The law, the Bible says, came through Moses. But grace and truth. Truth came through Moses. The law. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not just truth, but what? Grace and truth. In this we see the goodness and the severity of God. Grace. This is the second principle that we identify, right? We need truth to show us where we've fallen. But then we need grace to gently pick us up. Gently pick us up again. Micah 7, 8 says, Do not rejoice over me. And maybe, maybe, maybe this will be some of our testimonies in here. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Because that's when you're mash up and you're, the temptation is to, I mean, sometimes you have to control yourself when someone's running for the bus and they fall over, right? You've got to control yourself because you want to laugh at them, right? I'm not looking at your sister Judith. <laughs> if anybody knows, you know. Because the tendency, the tendency is for your enemy to gloat over you when you are fallen. But you notice, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I, notice, when I sit in darkness. Anybody ever been in that place? When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. But you see the emphasis. Full of grace and truth. Both of them. Now, which one are you going to put over the other? <laughs> it's deep, isn't it? Romans 3, verse 22. To 25 says, There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of God's perfect standard. No one meets that standard. Quote, unquote. There's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. That is those who have sinned. Bertram killed it. That is those who have sinned and fallen short, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is only in Christ Jesus. You can't find it anywhere else. It's just like, just like in the days of Noah. Like you want to get saved in Noah's day? You know what? There's only one way of salvation and it's in the ark. T today, you want to be saved? 
There's only one place. There's only one place of safety and security. It's in Christ. So get in the ark of safety. Jesus. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For God set him before the world to be by the shedding of his blood a means of reconciliation through faith. Wow, there's too much in there. I can't even stop. Ephesians 2. I'm trying to highlight this issue of grace and all. Come on. Ephesians 2 verse 5 through 9 says, Even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And, we, and, and if you know about your own trespasses, you know what I mean? You know that it's grace. Verse 6, and raised us up together. Why? You know what I'm saying? And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Like, that in the ages to come, I'm saying it's grace to know that we were this low and base. Look how high that individual's been exalted who's experienced the grace of God. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches. And that's not, that's, that's not an over-exaggeration. The exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Lest anyone should boast. Ain't no boasting right here. Or up in heaven. How did you get in here? Well, boy, I said, I'm tell you how I got here. No, they ain't going to be none of that. <laughs> no, they ain't going to be none of that. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Pastor E quoted Hebrews 4. On, think about this, right? On that basis then, it makes sense that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. But it doesn't make sense. How are you going to come to the... I mean, who would try... Who, like, President Trump here, is a, he's a bit of a scary brother. You know what I mean? He's not the kind of guy... I mean, who would step to the president anyway, you know what I'm saying, under normal circumstances quite boldly, let alone Mr. Trump? Like, he come like Herod in my mind. Like Herod was a man, he looked at you, if you looked slightly shifty, he'd have, you, he'd have you executed. And that's members of his family. Brother was shifty. I'm like, now, does that mean I hate President Trump? It don't mean that. I don't know the man, apart from trying to make my point, which is stepping to someone in extreme authority is scary. But he, God says, come to me, come to my throne. When you think about the throne, you think of power, authority, ruler. You know what I'm saying? Dominion and power. You're like, that stuff makes you cower. But he says, come. This is my issue, man. Come boldly to the throne of grace. It's, it's, like, it's, it's like the two don't kind of go together. Apart from knowing that Jesus is he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. I mean... Lions are scary, right? But he's also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like, figure that out. With regards to grace. Grace. and Grace to help in our time of need. And if you're anything like me, oh my gosh, is there a time when I don't need grace? The only time I think I don't need grace is when I really don't know. I don't know myself. I really, I don't know nothing. 
but if I really have any understanding, like, you put your hand up if you need grace, I've got both hands up. Third principle, because we, we have to come to some kind of conclusion. The third principle, I mean, we could stop there, right? And that would be blessed. But the third principle is time. Time. According to Jesus, the woman caught in the act of adultery deserved stoning, but he chose not to condemn her. And along with forgiveness, he also gave her time. Go. Here is a second chance. Go and sin no more. How many of you know that's encouraging? Listen to the listen. Listen to the God. That, listen. To, listen to your, the, the heart of your Father. The heart of God. Listen. But beloved, love how that starts. This is to the one who is loved by God. Beloved, you know what I'm saying. Do not forget this one thing. Why would He say don't forget it? Because it's, it's this is stuff we tend to forget. <laughs> it's quite straightforward. You know what I'm saying. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. One day for God. Is like a th- imagine that. That's how busy God is. You know what I'm saying? You'd be like, oh, Robert, man, I tried to bail you, man. Why didn't you get back to my text? How come you never re- responded to my voice, man? I'm like, fam, I'm so busy, you know. <laughs> That's me in my, in my day. How busy is God? Well, my one day is, is, is like a thousand days of God's busyness in one day, if, that make, if you can make sense of that. You know what I'm saying? A thousand days. One day is like a thousand. Oh my gosh, I said a thousand. How come you lot never corrected me? Oh my gosh. So you've got to be careful with these preachers, you know, they lead you astray. <laughs> but that proves my point even further, right? One day is a thousand years. That's how much God packs in, if you like. And, a, and, a th- and, 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 and then the, the, the opposite is also true. A thousand years is like one day. Not yet. Verse 9, but the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Because sometimes we can be like, man, I've been waiting, look how long. It seems long to us, it's not long to God. It's like a second. You know what I'm saying? Your whole life is like one second to God. You know what I mean? And the temptation is for us to think, oh man, maybe God's not really on this thing. Maybe God's not really for me. Maybe God's not, you know I'm saying, going to save me, going to redeem me, going to help me, going to come to my aid. Maybe he's not who I think he is, right? think is is the point specifically with reference to time now god is not slack concerning his promise he's going to fulfill it as some would count slackness but is long suffering toward us there's something going on with regards to time from god's point of view as it relates to us because he's not willing that any should perish now does anybody know the definition for long suffering suffering long and that's, how, that's from God's perspective with regards to us. I mean, he puts up with a lot from me on my own, apart from all of you lot. And we are only representative of what? One millionth of all of the Christians on the planet? Let alone, you know what I'm saying, those who are not in relationship with God and all the drama that they give God. I'm like, he's got a lot on his hands, but it's all right. point is God grants us time and it's because of his great love 
You see that? Back to verse 7 of our text. Look at verse 7. Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. For three minutes, for three days, three weeks, three months. For three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Talk about grace and time. But then look at amazing grace in verse 8. Verse 8, it says, but he answered and said to him, sir, because <laughs> he knows what the master can do. He says, sir, let it alone, please. Sounds a bit like Abraham pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah. Sir, let it alone this year also. Give it some more time until I dig around it and fertilize it. We need truth. We need grace. But we also need time. The vine dresser does all that he can. But then it's the responsibility of the tree to do something, right? And a tree is one of the ultimate examples of the believer. Why? Because a tree speaks of unselfishness. When have you ever seen a tree eating its own fruit? It's a perfect example of unselfishness. Tree's reason for existing is not to provide food for itself, but for others. Now, what type of fruit that is produced is another message in itself. But for the time being, may the Lord help us to understand the process. Past, present, and future, we all struggle to different degrees. I have been, I am at the moment, and I'm sure I will be in the future, frustrated by my shortcomings. And very often I feel unsatisfied. I have that personal spiritual dissatisfaction. You know what I'm saying? And that's the point. I feel, I, feel, I feel unsatisfied, but not with you, but with myself. You know, I've known, I've known my wife for 25 years. I feel it for her. She, had, she got the runs all night last night. That's why she's not here. And um, <laughs> I've known her for 25 years. Um, we've been married in... in is it October? Have I been married for 25 years already? No, it's, it's coming up. Is it 26? Wow, it's 26. Time, wow, time <laughs> isn't it? Good thing she ain't here, isn't it? <laughs> and she don't really make a habit often of listening to the podcast, when I'm preaching anyway. Because um, <laughs> she's whatever it is, she's heard it all before. Um, what's my point? 25 years. It's taken a long time, but I can honestly say that um, I'm not the man that I, I, I ought to be. You know what I'm saying? I confess that. I'm not, I'm not the man that I want to be. You know what I mean? And she will probably confess that. Um, but thank God that I'm not the man that I used to be. You know what I mean? And as much as that's mine, I'm sure that's your testimony too. And, um, and all because of a wonderful combination of truth, grace, and time. Three vital ingredients to help us come to the point of fruit bearing. Verse 9 to conclude. And if after this time it bears fruit, well, good. It's like that's fantastic, right? This is the aim. John 15, 16. 
Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. See, that's God's desire for you. And it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Romans 2 says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Because we just looked at how good he is. His forbearance and his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. See, that's why I, I, I tried to paint the picture of God's goodness. Because that's what actually leads us to, to repent. That's what leads us to change. When you say, Bertram said, Jesus hung on the cross. You know what I'm saying? Not for his own sins, but for our sins. And as we took communion, you know what I'm saying? I was re re just reflect. I was like, Lord. And that's something we can't be reminded of often enough. You know what I'm saying? It never ought to become laborious when we, when we shut our eyes and consider the cross and the price that Jesus paid in order to redeem us. Do you despise that? The riches of his goodness, his forbearance and long-suffering. Know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. If it bears fruit, good. But if not, after all that, he says you can cut it down. And to conclude, there are implications for not bearing fruit. Luke 3, verse 7 to 9. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, he said, you brood of snakes. Another transla translation says, you reptilian sneaks. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Pastor, he talked about that earlier. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. See, don't you hear the warning? And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and it's thrown into the fire. The goodness and the severity of God. Which side of him will we embrace? going to ask the team to come up and join me as I pray. The goodness and the severity of God. Remember, Jesus is the lion, but he's the lamb. We can't have one without the other in the sense that this is who God is. This is who God has revealed himself to be. Father, <clears throat> thank you for this great, thank you for the incredible illustrations that you give us throughout scripture. No less this, this, this illustration of the tree. And um, Father, thank you because that's what you want us to be. You want to be a, a fruit bearing tree, a fruit bearing plant. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man. How do, we, how, do, how do we bear that fruit? Blessed is the man who walks, or the woman, who walks not after the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it do they meditate day and night. That person, that man, that woman, shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and they will bring forth their fruit in its season. Everything they put their hand to will prosper. That's what we want to be, Father. And that's the tree of your planting, the tree of your choosing. 
And on top of it all, you're the one that made trees. You give us a beautiful illustration that points us back to you. Father, sometimes we can be overwhelmed with our sinfulness. Lord, we know it affects others. It affects us deeply. But Lord, more so it affects you. But thank you. It didn't affect you to the point where you just sat in a corner with your thumb in your mouth. It moved you to do something on our behalf. Furthermore, the Bible says that before the foundations of the earth, you put in a plan to save man. The Bible says in Romans 8 that we were predestined before the foundations of the earth. Thank you that you created the world in six days and then you rested, but we know that you still continue to work. And you're working in bringing men and women to salvation, to that place of rest. So eventually we can kick back like you kick back and we can rest because you've dealt with our ultimate issue, which is our sin. And we don't have to work for it. That's crazy, Lord. Wow. So, would, Lord, would you, would you do a few things? Would you, would you convict us, Lord, of our sinfulness like the woman caught in the act of adultery? And help us to see the seriousness and the severity of sin. We need your truth. But Lord, please pour out your grace upon us. Because we will die. We'll be consumed, Lord, with condemnation. Sitting in that dark place, Lord, without your grace, without your light, without your love. And thank you, Lord, that once you alert us to this, and you give us your grace, then you give us time to be sanctified by your spirit as you work in us. Thank you, Lord, for putting us in a community. It's not just me, one as a single individual tree. I'm in an orchard full of trees. What a blessing. And Lord, we're asking that you would cultivate us so that we would be a vineyard, Lord, to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.